1: George Brooks of La Crosse, Wisconsin had two callings in life. The first was to find a low-key and flexible job to pay the bills, which became working as a soda jerk at the Bodega Lunch Club. He worked there for 42 years and thanks to his boss, William Bonadur, owner of the Bodega, he was able to follow his second calling.
2: You want to know about Brooks, huh? Well, he's been training those hounds for over 20 years already. I still remember the first hound he brought home. Name was Lady. Got her all the way from England for five hundred bucks. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, between you and me, I don't pay him well enough to be throwing around money like that. And this was in 1932. The thirties were hard years around here. He'd been working for me for, uh, I'd say, about ten years at this point, and he says he's felt too confined in here, inside all day serving sodas and ice cream. Said it. Said he needed something to get him outside. says, what's the use of training hunting dogs if you can't use them year-round? So, he started training hounds to hunt people. Criminals, lost people, missing people, you name it. He even helped locate a Japanese POW who was interned at Camp McCoy during the war. He saves lives. Of course, he's got the support of the police, the mayor, and the entire public of La Crosse. I mean, so... What am I supposed to do but let him take off whenever he's got to go? And you know, to be fair, I do think some of the kids buying sodas and sundays hang out there in case he asks them to help him. You see, the secret to training bloodhounds is training them in city life. Brooks got his bloodhounds to be what they are by letting kiddos run around town, creating trails for the hounds to track them. Those dogs are a bit too smelly for my taste, but the kids love them. One day I drove past the ice cream shop over on 16th Street and I saw Brooks there buying some kiddos cones with the hounds. And would you believe it? Those kids love those dogs so damn much that they were letting the dogs eat half of their ice cream. Disgusting. Anyways, you probably care more about the crimes, huh? Well, as I was saying, Brooks trains his hounds real good throughout the city so they can track anyone, anyone, anywhere. One of the only times I can remember a hound not solving a case, it wasn't really her fault. It was that first pup, Lady. See, Brooks hadn't even had her three weeks before Sheriff Wall called looking for Brooks. The sheriff heard that Brooks had bought a bloodhound and was desperate. Two bank robbers had gotten away up in Mindoro, about twenty miles northeast of here. So, Brooks puts Lady in the car, knowing it was a slim to none chance of an untrained pump, a uh, pup, you know, helping it all. But when Sheriff Wall tells you to do something, you do it. So Brooks gets there and Lady catches a trail right away. She tracks the robbers all the way to a stream where the trail ended. Brooks could not believe how talented she was, but when she got to that stream, Lady just started barking at the water. Well, the search party gave up, thinking she had lost the trail and it was a dead end. At this point, of course, Brooks was invested in the case, so a few weeks later, he hears that they got the robbers in custody, so he goes up there looking to ask them, how they lost Lady and they tell Brooks that they were from the South so they know how to trick hounds. You see, they heard Lady coming and they went underwater and breathed through hollow reeds until the coast was clear. Poor Lady, she was barking, trying to tell everybody, but Brooks barely knew her at that point and didn't know how to read her or what she was capable of. He never doubted his dogs again after that. He always said, from that time on, I let my dogs tell me where to go and what to do. He'll follow his hounds for two weeks across states if he has to. Sometimes he'll track someone and the family or the neighbors will doubt that person's guilt. And he'll always say to them, by golly, if my dog says he did it, he did it. Yeah, he'll follow those dogs anywhere. One case that made big headlines was in 39. This car thief, Ray Olson, was surrounded by police and he ended up murdering two deputies with a shotgun. Brooks was gone for two weeks running across the Northwoods. Olson kept trying to evade the dogs by using all the tricks that never worked. He tried burning down a cabin that he slept in Those dogs just followed the scent right up to that burned site, walked around it, and then kept going. Didn't even slow him down. The search posse eventually caught up to Olsen, and the police shot him as he was running towards a boat on a lake. The dogs trailed him right to his lifeless body, and they were looking up at Brooks, wagging their tails, happy that they did their job. Of course, they had no idea what Olsen did or why he was dead. They just knew that Brooks wanted him to be found, and they did it. You see why I just gotta let Brooks leave at the drop of a hat? Those hounds are his passion in life. He loves helping people. I can't say no to the guy. And you know what? Brooks never even gets paid for this stuff. It's only been lately that he's begun asking people to pay for gas and the oil that he uses. He's crazy if you ask me. He'd do that work full-time if, if he wanted. He wouldn't have to work here at all, and I could get an employee I could count on. But no, Brooke says, if he charged everyone, then there would be people who couldn't afford him and his dogs. Says, well, just as long as I make another bloodhound fan. <laughs> nah, I just like to give him a hard time. His dogs have done a tremendous amount of good And if George figures he can spare the time and money, I guess I can spare George.
1: Between 1932 and 1960, Brooks and his bloodhounds assisted law enforcement officials in over 3,000 cases in tracking and apprehending criminal suspects as well as finding individuals who were lost. He turned down two very notable cases. In 1932, the New Jersey Sheriff's Office offered him $100 a day if he brought his dogs out there to search for the kidnapped Charles Lindbergh, Jr., Another was in 1958 when Brooks was contacted by President Fulgencio Batista of Cuba who wanted help locating revolutionaries in the hills. These revolutionaries were led by Fidel Castro who went on to overthrow the Batista regime in January of 1959, only a few months after Brooks received the letter. Likely the most famous local case Brooks worked on was that of the Evelyn Hartley kidnapping in 1953. Brooks' bloodhounds were able to get a trail from the back of the house to around a neighbor's house and onto a road where the trail disappeared. This is how it was deduced that Hartley was taken in a vehicle. Vehicles were a sure way to lose bloodhounds and they were unable to find many other clues, much to Brooks's dismay. This case remains a nationally known unsolved mystery to this day. Brooks worked at the Bodega Lunch Club for 41 years and retired from training bloodhounds in 1960 after suffering a major heart attack. According to one source, his diet consisted of a sweet roll with butter for breakfast and raw hamburger throughout the day. After the heart attack, He began staying close to home and relaxing. He thought he was just taking a break and would get back at it someday. However, he never did make it to another case with his bloodhounds. He died in April of 1978. He and his wife lived with the bloodhounds until the end. And now I'd like to welcome in Jenny DeRocher, Associate Librarian in the Archives Department, who did some of the initial research for this
0: story. Researching George Brooks and his bloodhounds was a lot of fun. Not only did I get to see hundreds of photographs of dogs, but every time I read something new about Brooks, I found myself growing more involved and moved by his life. And it seems that many journalists had similar experiences. They clearly felt inspired by him. Some even went so far as to say they had become friends with him during their interview process. It wasn't just about what Brooks did for his hobby. It was his outlook, his actions, his words. For example, one journalist wrote in 1939, quote, to get on the right side of George Brooks, sit down at his botless soda bar in the bodega, give him a brand new combination for, mul- for a malted milk, and then casually bring up the subject of bloodhounds. George, a new and firm friend, will stand behind the bar all day, gladly inventing malted milks and talk about his bloodhounds, but casually refer to the number of murderers and criminals he and his dogs have caught, and he'll instead talk about the lost children he has found. To him, they're much more important." Unquote. When Life Magazine came and did a story on Brooks in 1951, they decided that a piece educating the public on the bloodhounds, on how bloodhounds track would be a good opportunity to also explain how light exposure photography worked, a concept that worked out beautifully in the two-page spread that shows a trail and how the bloodhounds tracked it, taking things like wind into account for the readers to grasp both processes. Bodega owner William Bonader had a display in the windows of the bodega to celebrate the Life Magazine coverage. To me, this kind of publicity just affirms Brooks' willingness to do anything to get the word out about how talented his dogs were. In 1939, Brooks was invited on Dave Ellman's national radio program, Hobby Lobby. He flew to New York with a few of his bloodhounds. A La Crosse Tribune article headlined, George Brooks's Bloodhounds Big New York Attraction, reported, quote, Brooks sighs and gets tired all over again when he just thinks about the attention his dogs were given in New York. From the hotel where they stayed to the studio in Radio City is a distance of only three and a half blocks. It took them an hour and a half to go that short way with the dogs, and they arrived late for rehearsal. Policemen were pushing back the crowd so that the hounds could get a bit of air." Brooks was quoted, We went to New York feeling like a couple of farmers, but we decided the New York folks acted like farmers where my hounds are concerned. Another reporter who traveled to La Crosse was Daniel Mannix. Mannix had a fascination with animals and the dream of becoming a fiction writer. To make a living, he was a freelance writer for a few major publications, including the Saturday Evening Post, one of the most widely read and influential magazines in the nation throughout the 20th century. After befriending a woman who bred bloodhounds in California, Mannix was connected to Brooks and pitched it to the Post for a story. They paid the expenses for a week-long trip for Mannix and a photographer to gather material. Mannix's piece was published in April of 1949, putting Brooks and La Crosse, Wisconsin in a national spotlight once again. Mannix wrote, quote, "'Working bloodhounds is not a business. It's an art. It requires unusual dogs and an, and an unusual man. George Brooks is a very unusual man. George has no interests except his dogs. He never reads a magazine or a book and has never seen a sound motion picture," unquote. To follow up, a, page lacrosse tribune article reported that local folks had a new appreciation for brooks it turned out that most people in the area had no idea that brooks and his bloodhounds had already solved 2,000 cases or that only a handful of people in the world trained bloodhounds to the extent of brooks nearly 20 years later mannix wrote the award-winning novel the fox and the hound published in 1967. the disney film adaptation was released in 1981 just three years after brooks's death I didn't find any source that Mannix gave credit to George Brooks and his bloodhounds as inspiration, but Mannix had no other publications about bloodhounds. His week of research with Brooks likely gave him some knowledge and inspiration that went into his novel. Here's just one example that I found. In his book, The Fox and the Hound, an important plot point that was later left out for the more family-friendly Disney adaptation, involves the dedicated hound chief dying after running in front of an oncoming train while following the trail of Todd, the fox. In the Post article about Brooks, Mannix wrote, quote, George Brooks always keeps his dogs on a leash. A bloodhound following a trail is completely indifferent to anything else and will walk right in front of a speeding car or straight into an oncoming train, unquote. When thinking about Brooks' historic significance, consider not just the lives that were saved, but the people he interacted with daily at the bodega, and the kids who spent hours exploring the local landscape to help train his dogs. The true influence of Brooks and his bloodhounds is immeasurable. Thanks for listening.